Review of Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Today we are joined by Sarah Wakeman to talk about substance use disorders, one of the most pressing public health issues of our time. Sarah is the Medical Director for Substance Use Disorders at the MGH Center for Community Health Improvement. She designs systems of care that draw on the strengths of communities to care for patients and residents with addictions. Sarah also practices in the adult medicine department of the MGH Charlestown Healthcare Center. We talk about the importance of language and discourse on the care for patients with substance use disorders and how care for these patients can be optimized by challenging our preconceived notions about addiction and approaching it like any other chronic disease. We also talk about new restrictions on opiate prescribing and what else we need to do to address the epidemic of overdose deaths, which there are almost 35,000 in 2015. Please check our website www.rospod.org for show notes, time annotations for specific topics, and links to some articles and resources that come up in our discussion. Lastly, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, which makes the show easier for others to find, and share us on social media. We tweet at ROS Podcast and are on Facebook at facebook.com slash review systems. Please drop us a line at contact at ROSPod.org. We'd love to hear from you. Sarah, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. You've made the care and advocacy for individuals with substance use disorders the focus of your career. How did you develop a passion for this patient population? Um, Great. So uh, initially when I was a medical student, I think like many medical students, I went into the field wanting to work with folks who needed care the most and so knew I was interested in marginalized populations or underserved populations, but thought that I would do that through global health. Um, and so had sort of envisioned a career for myself where I would actually be an HIV doctor um, working internationally. Um, and the summer between my first and second year of medical school, I had the opportunity to do a National Health Service Corps summer scholarship. Um, and I was working in the state prison in Rhode Island um, and initially working in the HIV clinic, actually, uh, given my sort of other interests. And I think before doing that, I had just sort of a general sense, like many people probably, that you have to do something bad to end up in prison. Mm. Um, and it was an incredibly eye-opening experience because literally every person I saw had either a substance use disorder or another mental health diagnosis mm-hmm. or an experience of trauma or all three. Um, and I remember my mentor um, saying to me that, you know, when you hear people's stories and you hear what they've been through, um, rather than judging them, you sort of find yourself thinking, man, all you did was inject heroin after going through all of that and realizing that, um, that you know, these people who are being uh, incarcerated are really suffering from a terrible disease and also from um, many horrific life circumstances. And so I got really interested in, in addiction and, and how it's at the intersection of, of social justice and policy and public health and also medicine. And that um, I think as my career developed, realizing that there's this incredible opportunity to work with people who are literally every day facing um, a potentially deadly disease, and yet there's treatment, and, and mm-hmm. with treatment, people's lives come back, and, and they get well again, and what an incredibly rewarding thing that is to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and I think just realizing that uh, there are a ton of disparities here at home, mm-hmm. uh, and that while global health is wonderful, and for many people, that's the right career path for them, for me, um, increasingly it became clear that I wanted to work, um, uh, work here on these issues. Sure. 
You've frequently written about the importance of language in the care for these patients. And you, in one of your papers, you cited a really interesting study that was performed in 2010 by John Kelly in the International Journal of Drug Policy in making this point. And um, can you describe the study a little bit and, and why you think it's so important? Sure. Yeah. So John, um, who's a friend and colleague, did this great study where they gave um, PhD and master's level uh, trained mental health clinicians a vignette, so a case description of a of a patient with addiction. And the only thing they changed um, in the two study arms was describing the person as either a person with a substance use disorder or as a substance abuser, which is the more common terminology, or at least had been at that time, and everything else about the case was the same. And they found that when the patient was described as a substance abuser, even these highly trained clinicians were more likely to recommend a punitive treatment. Hmm. So I think this is so crucial because uh, we focus a lot on language, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But I think many people think this is sort of a politically correct thing, that mm. the words don't necessarily matter outside of just uh, using appropriate terminology. But this study really shows that the language we use not only affects stigma, but it actually directly impacts clinical care and the outcomes that our patients experience. Yeah. And it's funny, it seems like kind of a subtle thing, a substance abuser versus having a substance use disorder, but it's such a stark difference and how people judge the judge the patients. Absolutely. So what what terms do you recommend caregivers use generally and and what what do you recommend we avoid? Well, I think a great litmus test is asking yourself if you'd use the terms you're about to use for for addiction or substance use disorder, if you would use those terms for another medical condition. So um, probably the worst term that's used uh, related to addiction would be abuse or abuser. Um, and again, we would never use terminology like that for another medical condition. So we don't refer to people with uh, eating disorders being food abusers or uh, patients with diabetes as being sugar abusers. Um, so I think that's a sort of stark example, and John's study showed that, that the term abuse literally means a willful act of misconduct, mm. and it's a word that we use for things like um, sexual assault and um, child abuse, domestic violence. So it's rooted in, in all of our collective consciousness with really terrible acts that people are committing. And so I think that's that's the one to absolutely avoid. Okay. And in general, they use what we would call person-first language. So describing the person as having the disease rather than defining the person by their illness. And this is something that's true in all parts of medicine, that we don't want to talk about the breast cancer. We would talk about the person with breast cancer. And, sure. and we no longer call people schizophrenics or um, or diabetics, but rather to refer to them as a person with schizophrenia. Um, so using that kind of person-first language, as John said, John's study highlighted. Okay. Um, but then other words like clean and dirty, again, mm -hmm. are, are words that we wouldn't use with other illnesses. Um, and so even clean, which sounds like a good thing, implies that someone with active substance use disorder is dirty. Um, so those would be some, some key examples. Okay. In one of your writings, an essay called One Shot, you talk about how, and also cite some evidence showing that the tough love approach that has been I don't know, maybe in the past popularized, really hasn't been shown to be effective at helping people with substance use disorders recover. You suggest instead an empathic and supportive approach. Can you talk a little bit more about how that plays out in your practice? Sure. I think uh, many people have the idea that tough love is the way to go when either 
uh, caring for clinically or um, caring for a loved one or a family member with addiction or substance use disorder. And that's been popularized by shows like Intervention um, or various other uh, TV shows and even by some support groups and, and peer support groups. Um, I think we know now that that doesn't work, first of all, and that it's really not the right approach to, um, to interacting with someone with this disease. So if you think about the definition of addiction, addiction is defined as compulsive drug or alcohol use despite bad consequences or terrible mm-hmm. things happening to you. Um, so the disease is literally defined by continuing to have this compulsive behavior even when there are bad things happening to you. So making more bad things happen to that person, by definition, is probably not going to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if simply making life harder for people with, with substance use disorder help them get well, then um, interventions like mass incarceration would have <laughs> solved our addiction crisis. Yeah. Um, but in fact, when people are under stress and, and when they're when they're suffering is when they're likely to use substances more. And they've shown actually that a confrontational type style, so the sort of thing that you see on intervention where everyone confronts someone and tells them that, you know, they better get better or else Mm -hmm. um, actually make people drink or use substances at greater rates. Um, So it literally is counterproductive. Um, And so I think, again, for me, um, having trained as an internal medicine doctor, I, in my clinical practice, try to always come back to how would I be treating someone with another complex chronic disease where there's components of behavior and also components of biology and, and genetics. And, um, and I think our job as caregivers is to, um, to be allies and advocates and, and to help patients reach their own goals and figure out what those goals are. Um, and so in the case of, of addiction, it's often figuring out why would someone want to stop using, not why I think they should stop using alcohol sure. and drugs, but why might they want to? Yeah. Um, and then it becomes really no different than why would a patient with diabetes want to take insulin every day and change their diet? Um, and it's because the benefits of, of, of treating their illness and having their diabetes under good, good control outweigh the benefits of um, getting to eat whatever they want and not having to take a daily medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really the same in addiction. It becomes our, our um, role to help people figure out, you know, what are the benefits of, of treatment and of recovery and, and why might someone want to get into treatment and continue with treatment. Okay. At one point, you likened a patient in recovery to Lazarus rising from the dead. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And um, especially for maybe people who don't treat people with substance use disorders, what do you wish people knew and understood about treating this patient population? I think the first thing, probably the two big points I'd want people to know is, one, that this is a treatable condition, first and foremost, because I think um, often the message that the public gets and that and that physicians and other care providers get is a very nihilistic, pessimistic one, that this um, is not a very treatable condition and that there's not that much we can do about it, and that is patently false. This is an incredibly treatable disease and most people will recover. Um, It can take time, uh, just like many other chronic illnesses, and and we've got to keep people safe and alive until they're able to get into treatment and and successful recovery, but um, but this is a very treatable condition. Another thing is that it's incredibly rewarding to treat, Um, and I think that's another message that physicians and medical students and trainees really don't get, that that this is a lot of fun and and, um, feels really good to do. So I think when I when I said the Lazarus comment, what I meant is that um, again, this disease when people are actively struggling, 
they their lives fall apart. They can suffer these terrible negative consequences, um, dealing with overdose, dealing with life-threatening infections. Um, you know, it takes a huge toll on relationships and the ability to work and function. And yet with treatment, those things fade away incredibly quickly. So unlike, um, you know, cancer care or a lot of chronic disease care where we see sort of marginal improvement um, over long periods of time, you can literally see in one year the risk of death um, from opioid use disorder, as an example, decreases by more than 50% if someone has started on a medication treatment um, for their opioid use disorder. So you see these benefits that we see really only with things like aspirin for heart attack. Um, You don't see this kind of uh, positive outcome for other chronic disease management. Um, So as as a prescriber, of a treatment that can save people's lives, which is buprenorphine um, or Suboxone, which is used as a treatment for opioid addiction, it is incredibly, um, uh, you know, rewarding and amazing to get to be a part of that process and to and to help people um, recover in such a substantial way so quickly. Yeah, as you point out, we definitely need more uh, physicians and other providers to treat substance use disorders, and in trying to convince people to become suboxone providers or prescribe the medications that help uh, folks with substance use disorders maintain recovery. I've heard addiction medicine physicians say, things, like similar to you said, you know, if a patient comes in to your clinic with diabetes and hypertension, you would never say, well, I'll treat your diabetes, but I won't treat your hypertension. So, you know, I, I, I think that is a little bit reductionist. Yes, based on evidence, it's clear that there are changes in the brain. It's clear that substance use disorders are chronic diseases, and that's the best way to understand them. But there are also some very challenging, troubling behaviors that, for some patients, go along with their substance use disorder. Primary care is already hard enough. I can completely understand at times a provider who says, you know, I've had enough to do. I've got enough to do with these papers and making my productivity. The last thing I need is a patient who's, you know, arguing with my nurse about why his or her urine sample is cooled. So... So what is your response to that concern? Yeah, I think that's a great question and definitely a fair point. Um, You know, I think... Uh, addiction is a chronic disease, as you point out, but the organism that is affected and being damaged or the part of the body, unlike, you know, um, in diabetes, the pancreas is the is the damaged and, and malfunctioning uh, component. And with addiction, people's behavior literally changes, that it affects um, how they act and who they are. And many um, patients, once they get well, will tell you, I would never in a million years do the things that I would do um, when I was actively using. Mm-hmm. I will say a lot of those behaviors are um due in part to the way our system, our um, our society as a whole has addressed substance use. And so some of that will melt away when we stop um, uh, treating it like a crime or like a bad behavior. Um, yeah. But, you know, people feel like they have to lie about whether or not they were actively using because their entire lives they've been punished or sent to prison or kicked out of homes um, when they have, when, when they do use. And so, mm-hmm. um, so a lot of that goes away when you start talking to people differently about it. That being said, people will still, um, there are still behaviors that are unique to, um, to addiction that we don't see with other chronic diseases. So I totally get that. Um, I think my argument to PCPs would be that you're already caring for patients with substance use disorder, but you're caring for them with untreated substance use disorder. And untreated substance use disorder is the thing that manifests itself in all of these frustrating behaviors, and it also leads to an inability to care for other um, components of someone's health. So we know, as an example, that patients with both HIV 
and substance use disorder, their HIV care gets much better and their disease control gets much better once their addiction is treated. Um, And the same is true for other chronic illnesses. And so I think that many people's perception of what it would be like to treat addiction is their perception of what it's like to interact with people with untreated addiction. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, actually, treating it gives you this tool to improve your daily quality of life as a primary care doc yeah. and improve the quality of care you can deliver and the experience for your patients. And that it's really the untreated addiction that um, is so hard to manage. That's a really good point. I wanted to ask you a little bit about monitoring So for listeners who may not know, monitoring is a practice of checking a urine toxicology or cheek swab in patients in substance use disorder treatment. And this practice is really interesting to me. It's meant to prevent diversion. So there are situations where a patient may sell or give away the suboxone or methadone that they've been prescribed. And it can also detect if a patient has relapsed. You know, some providers are very protocol-driven with this. Um, Some are very stylistic and you know, I think use the results in different ways in different situations. Regardless, though, I think that um, I think it introduces kind of a very interesting additional layer of power into an already power imbalanced relationship, even more in substance use disorders than in, in other patient uh, doctor patient relationships. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on this and how you use monitoring. Yeah, great question. Um, and I think there, you know, there's lots of issues embedded in this, so it's great to discuss it. Um, so I would say a couple things. First, that in general, um, use of any type of testing has to be individualized to the patient and sort of thinking about what you're using it for, that this is a, um, a diagnostic test. And so just like you want to have some, you know, some sense of how you're going to respond to the results um, with any type of test that you're ordering. It's good to have that with with toxicology testing as well and to have it be a part of this individual patient's treatment plan. So um, even our state um, uh, BSAS, which is the Bureau of Substance Abuse, unfortunately, services (laughs) at the state level, um, put out a great sort of uh, practice sheet as a reminder about the use of toxicology and they recommend against any sort of boilerplate, you know, three times a week toxicology with no sort of um, individualized treatment plan and mm-hmm. also to bring patients into the um, into the discussion about how toxicology would be used um, and to never stop treating someone purely based on, on positive toxicology because as you point out, relapse or recurrence is a part of the disease. So I would say um, the way I sort of sit with that tension of the power issue because as you point out, you're sort of asking someone if they're using a substance and then you're testing them as if you don't trust mm-hmm. the answer that they've just given given you, um, is again to kind of fall back on as a PCP thinking about other diseases that we do that for. So again, with a patient with diabetes, I ask people what their blood sugars are like at home, but mm-hmm. I still get A1C. And sure. sometimes there's a discrepancy that they tell me, you know, oh, my blood sugar is perfect every morning. And, um, and then I get an A1C and it comes back at 12. And mm-hmm. so that actually opens up the window for a conversation about that discrepancy between kind of self-report and and what we find on on um, on measuring, and so I think the same can be true with substance use. That again, um, many patients they want to they want their docs to approve of them. They want um, yeah. they want us to feel like they're doing the right thing, and that's true across all diseases. And I often joke that 
although this is serious, that when I go to the dentist, I say that I floss a lot more than I do because I don't want them to think that I am a bad person, even though it's hard to remember to floss. Um, So I think we all, as human beings, we want people to approve of us and we want people to think we're doing the thing that we know we should be doing. Um, So I think that's a natural thing. And especially with substance use, again, where people can be thrown in prison for positive toxicology or for admitting to use, um, there's an even stronger urge to want to um, to sometimes want to lie about what's really going on. And so I think toxicology can provide a really useful um, opportunity to talk about, about what's actually going on. And so not infrequently, I'll have a patient, or not, I mean, I guess infrequently, I would say, but it happens where a patient will not report use and then their toxicology will come back with something surprising. And when I call them, it's an opportunity to talk about it. And they'll say, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't tell you, even though mm. I knew you were going to see it. And, mm. and then we can talk about what's really going on, how we sure. can um, help them and what additional resources they need. So that's sort of how I would live in that tension. I think we have to be thoughtful about it. Um, and like that practice guideline from BSAS recently mm-hmm. outlined, patients should never be terminated from care for, for positive toxicology, but it should be an indication that maybe their treatment plan needs to change or they might need a little bit more support or, um, or something to help them uh, get their disease back under control. Okay. When I was preparing for this, I saw figures anywhere from about 68 to 80% of heroin users started using opiates from prescription opiate pills, either a personal prescription or a family or friends. And that, for me, brings up the role of physicians in the opiate epidemic um, through perhaps careless prescribing or, you know, unfortunately there are some pill mills in certain mm-hmm. areas. So what do you think about our role, our role as a profession in the epidemic and some of the regulations that have been put into place recently? Yeah. So I think, um, I think, you know, it, it is pretty clear that changes in prescribing practices played a role in the current, in sort of the establishment of the current opioid epidemic in that you can literally sort of track along with with increasing number of pills that were being prescribed um, and in parallel rising rates of overdose death and treatment admissions for for opioid use disorder. So I think, unfortunately, that um, these sort of confluence events that happened in the late 1990s around um, pain becoming a vital sign and and the Joint Commission, you know, uh, tying some hospital reimbursement to pain management and then the pharmaceutical industry seeing a great opportunity to market drugs like OxyContin and others, um, that that sort of confluence of events led to this, um, at least played a role in the unfortunate um, crisis that we're in right now. That being said, what people are currently dying from is not prescription opioids. So in Massachusetts, 85% of the overdose deaths last year were due to heroin or illicit fentanyl. So, So I think prescribing practices began changing again, all of the sort of increased attention um, a couple of years ago, and actually deaths from prescription opioids started leveling off and decreasing in, in around 2012. But all the lives saved from those not dying from prescription opioids um, are being offset now by people dying from heroin. So I think, um, you know, there's that, that saying that for every complicated problem, there's a simple answer that's wrong. Um, and I think simply focusing on prescription opioids is not going to be the answer to the current crisis. At that, um, I think responsible prescribing and being responsible stewards of, of what is a very powerful and potentially dangerous medication treatment 
um, is incredibly necessary to prevent future people from inadvertently being exposed to, um, to a drug that can have consequences. But that being said, I think simply cutting off the supply of prescription opioids is not going to fix the crisis and will hurt um, people who either do already have addiction and then are switching to heroin or fentanyl and, mm-hmm. and at greater risk of overdose, or people who have um, serious chronic pain where the risks sure. and benefits of opioids um, weigh in favor of continued chronic opioid therapy. So mm-hmm. I think we need to be nuanced, and I think physicians need to join into the conversation that any sort of knee-jerk, simplistic reaction is, is going to lead to harm. So you were talking a little bit there about the overdose crisis, and um, in 2015, there were almost five every day in the state of Massachusetts. What are your recommendations in terms of, you know, a public health um, and healthcare system approach to responding to the crisis? Where do you see us failing, and where do you see some successes? Well, I think there's been a lot of attention on the supply side. I think, you know, as a country, we've always sort of focused on supply. The war on drugs is a great example. And now I think um, the focus on prescription opioids has been intense. Mm-hmm. And um, and as I mentioned, I think that's really important to think responsibly and in a nuanced fashion about prescribing going forward. Clearly, we are prescribing way too many opioids as a profession. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to focus more attention on the demand side of the equation, which is really people with untreated opioid use disorder. And it's really um, that piece that I think is continuing to drive the the overdose death crisis right now, the, you know, 85% of deaths that are happening from illicit heroin and fentanyl that people are buying on the street. Um, so my personal opinion is that supply um, focused approaches have uh, been a bit of a failure and that we really need to start focusing on this as a public health crisis and thinking about primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention of deaths. So, you know, primary prevention being preventing people from developing problems with opioids in the first place. And I think that's where um, where responsible prescribing comes in. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, um, many other primary prevention interventions. I think secondary prevention, you know, identifying people who are starting to run into problems and, and, um, and intervening at that point. And then tertiary prevention, both treating opioid use disorder and preventing death in people that are at highest risk. And I think the thing that's different with this public health crisis compared to many others is that we actually know how to do that. We just aren't implementing it on a broad scale. So um, it's not that complicated. It really is um, taking people who are at highest risk of death and getting those who are able and willing on treatment, particularly treatment with medications that we know save lives, so buprenorphine and methadone. And then for those that are still actively using, giving them the tools to keep themselves safe and alive. And so that is thing like things like supervised injection facilities, um, broad access to naloxone, uh, safer injection education, um, overdose education. So those kind of um, interventions are have been proven to save lives dramatically. Um, and and then making, I think, sort of overlapping between those two windows is making treatment available in models that can access uh, the most vulnerable and marginalized populations. So we know that, um, you know, many patients who need 
need medication treatment the most are not either able or willing to navigate what is a very complex and frustrating um, system at times with mm. long waiting times and often very strict kind of not evidence-based protocol-driven approaches. Um, and if you can bring treatment to people who need it most, so there's been pilots looking at um, doing buprenorphine treatment actually in syringe exchange programs where mm-hmm. you're accessing the population that is at greatest risk of death and offering them a much um, lower thresholds uh, treatment model that you can uh, be really effective in, in getting those patients the care they need. Sarah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and um, your expertise. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for covering this important topic. Oh, of course. You've been listening to Review of Systems. You can find links to all the articles and resources that we discussed on the show at our website, www.rospod.org. If you enjoyed the show, a quick reminder to please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us on social media. Tweet us your thoughts at ROS Podcast and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash review systems. Or you can email us at contact at ROSpod.org. We'd love to hear from you and thanks for listening.